Tags. In your honor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I always do when there's either when I leave home. Yeah. Or when I'm on camera with anybody. Okay. Okay. Do you did you have any uh, family or anything with uh, October seventh? Uh, no, I'm always once or twice removed. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I mean, I think you, you would you would you would know better than I would, but I always remember growing up and living outside of Israel. They would always say that any terrorist attack, there was always someone that knew someone or like some some family that was small country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Small but now, country. but it feels it does feel though that the country has gotten a little bit bigger since then. Doesn't feel it, so small. It has, and you know, um, very early on, in the first week, ten days, um, my son asked me, "Where is it going in terms of the environment we live in?" Yeah, and I told him, "Within three months, we're going to be in a schizophrenic reality where." In the main population centers, there will be a, Bible, a, a bubble of normalcy yeah. while war is raging north and south. And that was just the experience from, uh, from the war of attrition uh, mm. in, in, in those old days. So, I mean, just, just uh, refresh my memory because... So I'll I'll admit something to you. I, I can actually admit it to you now, now that I'm I'm out of the system and I'm not a, a journalist anymore, so I can speak freely. But you know, I, I don't I don't normally get starstruck, but for some reason, you know, and I've I've been on a plane with the prime minister. I've met you know CEOs and whatever, and I just I saw a normal human being, flesh and blood, in front of me. But for some reason, when I met you that first time. In uh, in that in that cafe, and I think it was North Tel Aviv, right? Or I guess probably close to where you live. For some reason, I felt like I was having like this close contact with history, and I was. And... <laughs> that, no, that, no, that's that humbling. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in the sense that uh, for me, I, and I don't know why, but uh, or maybe it's obvious, but this you, know, you being close to the Oslo process and that being like this sort of mythical period in my mind where there was this brief window of a few, of a, you know, a few years, let's say, where peace was possible and, and you know, what, what people must have been thinking, you know, what people must have been thinking at that point. Um, so, and, and so it's just as someone that was close to that process and, uh, and living in that time, it, for me, it was like this, oh my God, Please tell me more, uh, you know, <laughs> oh master. But um, so, but tell me, I mean, you've 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 been through a lot living in this country. What? How does this feel? How does this one feel compared to all the others, all the other times? Um, I think you know, um, there's a lot of talk about the fact that the country is in a post-trauma. Um, PTSD, post-trauma syndrome disorder, or or the opposite, post-trauma disorder syndrome. Post-traumatic um, stress disorder, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, that's the one. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're there. I think oh. we're still in the trauma uh, mm. phase because um, whereas people went back 
uh, to normal life with the exception of the 200,000 displaced in the north and the south. Everybody else went back to life in terms of job uh, routine, yeah. school routine, kindergarten routine, supermarket routine, whatever. But the, the intensity of the stories of that day, uh, the, the daily, uh, hourly reminders about the hostages, the heroes of that day, yeah. The abandonment, the sensation of abandonment by the military and the government. Um, they, they, they are all around us. I don't want to say 24-7 because the media gradually is inching its way to normal programming. Yeah. But only inching its way. We're still in a prolonged uh, all-day media focus every channel on what happened yeah and the fallout and the intensity of it um i think keeps the trauma um very vivid as opposed think, to reflections and so on do you think though like for example any traumatic thing that i've had occur to me personally i i there's like there's phases, right? There's the the event happens, and then I just continuously play it, replay it in my mind. And how did I how did I go wrong? What could I have done differently? Oh my God! It, you know, is this thing gonna be like? For example, one time, just the thing that comes to my mind is I had my son on my shoulders, and he was two years old, and uh, I had I was grabbing with uh, one hand, and I let him go, and he flipped, and he landed on his head on a rock, and you know, he had this. He's fine, right? But I remember thinking, oh my God, this this poor two-year-old boy and just having that that guilt of i'm i'm there to protect him and i didn't you know um so you magnify that times a million right and that's what october 7th was do you feel that people are still there i mean like how, how, what do you experience what are you experiencing like how do you how I, do you i you know we we have to distinguish between the the personal immediate environment and yeah. this schizophrenia that I find myself in where the, the effect, the emotional effect is still there mm -hmm. and you have to cut away to the analytical obligation of what I'm engaged in. Okay. Um, so the, the personal, um, it is there all the time. I, I can tell you that even though I live in a town that only had several occasions of red alert, uh, missile alert, only few. Uh, nonetheless, we heard a lot of the interceptions, the, the booms mm. of the interception of the uh, incoming missiles with, uh, with the Iron Dome. Yeah. Um, we, we heard it from all over uh, central Israel. We heard it here. Um, but only a couple times, five, six times, we had to go into uh, the safe room. Still, a, 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 a substantial noise in the neighborhood gets me jumping for, for a brief second. Yeah. Um, my children and grandchildren, they, never mind the grandchildren, the, the, most of them are, are too young, but, but my children and their spouses mm -hmm. um, keep asking me 
every time that there's tension in the north, is it coming? Because they know that if we have war with Hezbollah, what we experienced in the last 120 some days is going to be uh, relatively insignificant uh, in terms of uh, what's going on, what what will transpire in the center uh, of Israel. Yeah. Um, and and the questions are almost every other day. Uh, should we do something? Should we prepare ourselves? Um, and of course, uh, the more you visit which I do, the, the headquarter of the families of the hostages, mm-hmm. um, the more it is alive on a daily basis. How, um, what, what, what keeps you going there? I mean, the, I, I for, just well, for initially, me. Initially, I, wo- I was volunteered uh, to a team that was supporting the headquarters of the families Okay. Um, have you been there to the headquarters? Uh, honestly, uh, it's too much for me. Uh, the hostage okay. situation. Uh, okay. So, it's too heartbreaking. Uh, again, when you distinguish the emotional from the analytical, mm-hmm. the emotional is just as you say, it's too much. But when you go to the analytical, it is a microcosmos of how civil society took over the country in the absence of a government. The, the speed with which the headquarters was created, the sophistication of how they addressed the various aspects of the campaign, mm. um, international media, international dignitaries, local media, um, just uh, somebody donated a huge space uh, wow. divided into sectors. Uh, and it's been going on, as you know, for months wow. um, as a contribution. And the number of volunteers, I mean, just the, 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 the one that I interact with most uh, is the one that uh, is uh, a 24-7 unit of retired diplomats who man that thing wow. in order to do primarily three things. One is uh, uh, host foreign dignitaries and give them the spiel of what it's all about okay. and introduce them to members of families who give their story. The other thing they do is they um, 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 advise the families on how to address specific audiences, and they do it in all languages. I mean. Retired diplomat from India to South America, you name it. Uh, you, you have all the languages represented. Um, and then they are also involved in strategizing. Mm. Where should the families go? Who should they uh, focus upon? Who should go where? How to prep them for those trips? Uh, they're, they're doing it. Uh, and that's just one unit within this complex. And I was volunteered for a subunit that was supposed to come up with ideas outside the box in terms of mobilizing uh, international support for the hostages. 
What what to I wouldn't tell you that we produced miracles. Yeah. We did not. Uh, but we think that we came up with a few ideas that uh, have been at play. I mean, where do you even begin? Because it's you know it's so closely linked with the war itself and the aims. I mean, I'm not the first person to notice this. Obviously, this has been discussed publicly, um, but it is in conflict with the with the other stated aim, which is the destruction of Hamas and with Hamas hiding these hostages, which I still don't understand how um, they haven't been found. Um, maybe you can help me understand that. But what what do you think? I mean, is it is it is it possible to do both at the same time to destroy Hamas and to get the hostages? Is it no, from, from the outset, uh, some of us, uh, it's not a consensus, as you know, but yeah. some of us felt that there is an uh, inherent conflict yeah. between the two objectives. Um, and that conflict was uh, amplified uh, repeatedly uh, by the prime minister uh, uh, in various statements. I mean, look, the, the basic difference between this round and previous ones was that on previous occasions, no matter how much damage we thought to inflict on Hamas in order to degrade its capabilities and deter it from coming back and starting yet another round, no matter how much damage we did, everybody knew that in the end of the day, we're in for a ceasefire understandings with Hamas. Hamas will continue to run Gaza, and we have, re for 15 years or more, it's the Netanyahu strategy, uh, policy directives to the, the security establishment uh, that we do not uh, remove Hamas from Gaza. He had his reasons, awful reasons. It all exploded in our faces on October 7th. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was the strategy. So it's one thing when the leader of Hamas and the leadership of Hamas know that there is a morning after for them. And then you can strike a deal. But when you keep telling them, you are done with, you, your only um, way out is either surrender or we'll kill you. There is no third option. Right. So when they use the hostages as the ultimate human shield, there's no incentive for releasing them. So they would release some if you offer them a relief, a pause. But they will always keep what they consider are the most... Um, uh, potent shield um, until whatever the, whatever last minute there is. But when the prime minister goes on, on, on camera to the public and say, we will continue and we will kill them no matter what, after they release the hostages, we will kill them, where is the incentive for them to strike a deal? Wow, it's it's it's, um... it's, it's, it's a, it, it was it was at the root of something that um, we did in Commanders for Israel Security. 
and if you want, I'll explain what organization it is. Yeah, do it. Um, Please do. But what, what we did very early on, very early on, we sent to the war cabinet a memo, and we did the same with Washington and some na relevant neighbors uh, in the region. <laughs> we sent a memo that I can summarize by, I think, three words. No, more. Uh, four words. All for all and out. Now, what does it mean? We developed a, a it's a one pager mm -hmm. in which we said that for the reasons that I just enumerated at length, but we didn't need to spell it out so, so much detail because Eisenkot and, and, and Gantz and BB and the others don't need, they know what we're talking yeah. about even shorthand. Mm -hmm. Anyway, what we said was that the only way out is um, the uh, what we called the Lebanon model, the Beirut model. That is to say, in 1982, after Israel invaded Lebanon because of, uh, at that time, the PLO, um, Arafat and his entire leadership was allowed to leave for Tunisia. Okay. What we said, when we said all for all and out, we meant all hostages for all prisoners and all of them with the leadership of Hamas out. There was already discussions in the Arab world where out might be. Oh, wow. And most were pointing at Algeria as the one that is willing to accept them. Uh, but we didn't presume to replace the government in negotiating the where, okay? Or why, the why? how. Why Algeria? I'm just curious. Uh, Algeria apparently felt why Tunisia in '82. Uh, uh, the leadership there decided that that was a good way to uh, to uh, show, on the one hand, um, sympathy with the Palestinians. I'm doing something for them, mm -hmm. and on the other hand, show the international community we're useful, we're instrumental. Uh, give us some credit uh, okay. for, for, for doing that. So okay. all kind of internal considerations of the Algerians, which I'm not privy to. Right. Uh, but we, we got the indication that if that were to be implemented, it, it's the likely destination. Some people suggested Turkey uh, because of its close, uh, Erdogan close support for Hamas. Um, and then there were other ideas too, uh, but that's, that's a secondary issue. First of all, should, does the Israeli government agree that you accomplish the two primary objectives that you set out, which is bringing all the hostages back home alive and getting rid of Hamas in Gaza? Both of them are implemented by this one, even though it's quite politically challenging to release 6,000 security prisoners from our prison. Um, so it takes leadership, uh, which we currently don't have. Um, anyway, that was the logic. It's, it's, it's the one way we, we saw that you can square the two objectives. So, and how, how does that, 
how, how would how do you think that day two would would have looked like it? Let's say the government had followed your you, you know commanders for the security of Israel, their advice, this memo. What exactly does that solve for? Because you still have, if correct me if I'm wrong, right? But when when the PLO was kicked out of Lebanon, they were still uh, recognized as leaders of the Palestinian national movement, and of course Arafat made his way back into Palestine and. You know the the history continues from there. Oslo, right? Exactly. And um, oh, so you're saying that what that Hamas can be? Uh, no, 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 I'm not. Okay. No. Um, on the one hand, look today after October seventh, it's very difficult to talk about the possibility that Hamas will change course as a movement. You can't talk about it because emotions are so high. Um, I, for one, never accepted in the 80s that there's no way that the PLO will change from a terrorist organization to a political movement. Um, and even though it's very difficult to say today, um, I'm not sure that 10 years from now, Hamas or whatever new name will be the 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 gathering entity of Palestinian Islamists um, will not have changed course from primarily terrorist military organization to primarily political one. Um, one whose agenda um, are an anathema to me, but a legitimate player as long as it does not resort to violence. Mm -hmm. legitimate player of the Palestinian political arena. Uh, if we are smart, we will help the moderates so that the Islamists will never win elections. Uh, but, uh, but that far, we have done the opposite. Uh, we uh, empowered the, the, the radicals and undermined uh, the moderates uh, on the West Bank, the, the Palestinian Authority. So, so it's... It, it, Changing Hamas is not the objective of the specific move that we were advocating, and it was not even an assumed outcome. Mm -hmm. The assumed outcome was to find a way to end the fighting in Gaza before both sides have more casualties, mm -hmm. but accomplish the objective that there is no more Hamas, and the morning after begins. Now, there's a big question of what does the morning after look like? And we've been working on it, and we have our own ideas. Um, and some of them already trickled into what one might call the, the Biden initiative, mm. which is reflective of not just the U.S. policy, but the policy of the American relevant partners in the region. They're all united today around the same concept of what the morning after should look like. And it, it is the same as, as we developed here uh, inside. So you are someone that, I mean, you know all the relevant players from up close, right? You, you, you have your relations with the Palestinian Authority, you have your relationships, relationships in, in Washington, of course, obviously in Israel. So from, from an Jordan, Saudi Arabia, yeah, the Emirates, Qatar. Yeah. 
Europe. Yeah, exactly. So, and when you say you, it's plural. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and but from an outsider's point of view, um, I think what I have I have decreasing levels of confidence that any Palestinian leadership, whether moderate or extreme or not, is an effective conduit for real progress. Because so Hamas, obviously, we we you know we, we disqualify on its face, but even the Palestinian Authority. And now I'm just thinking as a Palestinian, right? And I see the levels of corruption that they have over there and their ineffectiveness. And again, putting aside the fact that now Hamas is, is more popular than it's ever been, or, or you know, it's been in a while. What is to be gained by... Why, why should I trust these guys if they're corrupt, seemingly, right? All the polls show, and, and, and there's plenty of evidence to support that. If they're corrupt and and ineffective, what makes you think otherwise? Like, well, why do you, you know, why do you support, for example, the? And you you made mention to Biden and their sort of their what their 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 push towards you know empowering, let's say, the Palestinian Authority to drive some kind of progress towards a two state solution. There, there's a lot to unpack in this one question. The floor is yours, um, man. Yeah. So I try to to zoom in on two aspects of it. Yeah. One, I don't want to put words in your mouth, and you didn't say it, but others do. And that is that there, there is something about the Palestinians that they are different from any other people uh, and therefore cannot govern themselves properly. Uh, sort of a genetic deformation. Uh, I reject that uh, for a, a variety of reasons, not the least experience. As do um, I. I would never okay. say that. So the very fact that today we have a very weak Palestinian authority uh, that enjoys no public support whatsoever, 80% or more, once it's gone, 80% or more, once Abu Mazen gone. Yeah. Um, that's not because of some basic flaw in the Palestinian psychic. That is a result of certain processes that brought the Palestinian Authority to its current miserable state. Um, and those processes are both internal and external. Internally, as you said uh, correctly, it became corrupt. It became detached from its own constituency. Uh, it became authoritarian, non-democratic, and even paranoid at the top mm -hmm. to the extent of um, uh, uh, exiling either from politics or from the West Bank altogether, uh, the best and the brightest, because the uh, Abu Mazen felt that they were challenging his authority. Which is not not the point, right? The point is is the prosperity and uh, yeah, the That's prosperity right. of so, Palestinian people. Right? So the, the, the old Abu Mazen is very different from the younger one. Very mm. different. I mean, the picture over my shoulder is too small for you to see, but that's Abu Mazen uh, at dinner in my home. Um, 
um, he was a very different man. Um, we worked very closely, very closely, including in our team, very small team, and he and his small team manipulating Yasser Arafat <laughs> into what we jointly believed was essential. He was a man of peace all his life. Mm. He, was, he, he was and still is uh, hostile to violence. I remember the, the, the courage that he took, or at least that I um, viewed when he, during the height of the Second Intifada, when for all Palestinians the blood was gushing and they didn't see straight, they saw through red, and they, the, the best of them, were engaged in violence. Really, people who were the, the, the hardcore of the Palestinian peace camp at the time were engaged in violence, in brutal yeah. violence. And he went from one branch of Hamas to another, of, uh, of uh, Fatah to another, telling them, stop it, you are insane. Mm. You are distancing our future. You are killing the prospect. And, it took a lot of courage at, the, at that time to stand up to, to violence. He was not alone, but they were very, very few, less than a handful at the top. And you're, um, and you're, and you're right, e even that sort of resistance to violent confrontation with Israel continues even now, right? I, absolutely. So, and not just resistance to confrontation, but they are paying a very serious price with their own people when mm -hmm. they cooperate with our security agencies. True. Um, they cooperated with our security agencies before the Second Intifada and once it was over, okay? Mm -hmm. um, they did. Now, the, 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 I'm, I'm uh, digressing from what you wanted me to focus, but nonetheless, yeah. you know, the, the Palestinian security agencies were the pride and joy of the Palestinian people. They are all trained under the authority of an American uh, general, uh, and his agency is called USSC, United States Security Coordinator. Uh, there are Canadians and Brits and, and, and Australians in, in this uh, thing, and it is funded by various countries, and they are responsible for training and equipping the Palestinian security agencies. But we find they also became a liaison between them and our, uh, and our forces uh, when 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 things weren't bad and communication channels were were interrupted, um, they were the pride and joy, and they were the best trained, in, I think, in the Arab world. In the sense that when a policeman in the Arab world issues you a ticket, you can buy your way out with a fifty shekel uh, bill. Not in Palestine. Mm. The pride was such, and the training they they instilled in them. The pride in the uniform, um, that it, it, it was not the case. And, and Palestinians looked at them as symbolizing a state in being. With time, when we changed course, and gradually the hope for statehood evaporated, the same people who were the vehicle for statehood became the subcontractors sub of the occupation, doing the same thing. Doing mm -hmm. exactly the same job. One day they were such, and the, in, in a couple of years they were that. 
Um, whenever there is tension and they go into the street with a uniform, the, the, the crowd screams at them, tailors, you're serving the occupation, not Palestinian national aspirations. Hmm. Um, at moments of crisis, um, I heard it from the head of the agencies, um, they have 30% absenteeism from, uh, from work wow. because they don't want to put their uniform on and go into the street because of the, of the peer pressure. Um, and, you know, I asked him, uh, I asked him, how can you sleep at night if you don't know if in the morning they will show up to work? And he wow. looks at me and he says, you don't understand the half of it. It's not that I worry that they don't show up to work. I worry that they will show up with their weapons somewhere else. Right. And join a mob attacking Israelis in order to cleanse themselves of the accusation that they are traitors and, and subcontractors of the occupation. Wow. You know, Muhammad Dahlan once told me when he was still um, in, the, in, in, in Gaza, running uh, security in Gaza, he's now in exile in, uh, in uh, Abu Dhabi, another picture on the wall. Um, Muhammad Dahlan told me, you don't understand. When, when, when I get instructions or requests from the IDF to go and arrest someone, in the Hanunis refugee camp, my boys, his soldiers, are supposed to arrest a neighbor, a classmate, a friend. He says, when I do it when there is a political horizon, they do it in the service of Palestinian national interest. Mm. When I do it with no political horizon, they do it in the service of the Israeli occupation. Most Israelis don't understand this. Now, let me come back. And I said, one problem was the, uh, the, uh, the deformation of the Palestinian Authority internally and the need for new blood, for reforms, organizational reforms. You know, I remember there was a period, if you want evidence that it is not a genetic deformation and Palestinians can run a healthy administration. It was the time that Salam Fayyad, who came to the West Bank from a senior position with the International Monetary Fund uh, in Washington, was Minister of Finance and later Prime Minister. He was of amazing. The Palestinian Authority. Tremendous person. He's now at Princeton. Um, but he's willing to come back. Should Bring him back. Abu Maz <laughs> should Abu Mazen allow it? Oh. Uh, because he's another one of those who might overshadow uh, the old president. Uh -huh. Just, so, just to spell out what, what exactly he did, because I mean, I know a little bit about him, but... So I, I met with him uh, in, in, uh, in the, in the um, uh, American Colony Hotel in uh, East Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, I, need to discuss, I needed to discuss with him something. Um, and, and he told me, here is a link Tomorrow, click on it in your computer and you will see the Palestinian budget fully transparent for everyone to observe. <laughs> if you want the reason that he was fired, 
That's part of it because he didn't tolerate corruption. Yeah. And he wanted that's, transparency, and that was still under Arafat. That's, yeah. That was yeah, still yeah. under Yasser Arafat. Anyway, what I'm saying is that one thing that happened was the internal deformation. Uh, and when people say that there is a need for reform, and, and President Biden coined the phrase, you know, people don't talk about PA anymore, Palestinian Authority. People mm. talk about RPA, Revitalized Palestinian Authority. Mm. Okay. And that's a coined by President Biden. Now, when you take the term uh, revitalized and open this black box and say, what's the image? Everybody thinks about the need for new blood in leadership. Yeah, personal, personal reforms are necessary. The elections eventually will have to happen. But institutional reforms are no less essential. Um, the, the, the place is just a mess. And it's not functioning uh, properly okay. uh, for, for the people. So that's one. But there's no way that the Palestinian Authority in its current situation will be strong enough to enact the necessary reforms unless those who can help it by strengthening it will do their jobs. And nobody is more important than Israel. In that respect, we are not only by far the powerful party, we hold most of the cards. If we wish we took the Palestinian Authority as our Minister of Finance, Smotrich is doing these days, if we wish, we give it the space. If the Israeli security establishment coordinate with the Palestinian security agencies and allows them to do some of the, of the job rather than we present them to their own people as useless. If we constrain Israeli settler violence, I mean, a Palestinian individual today says the IDF is not protecting me from the settlers. The Palestinian agencies do not protect me from them. So where do I go? So this is the only place to go is Hamas. They'll mm. give me weapons. And I'll be able to defend my family. And on order, I will kill an Israeli if necessary. Um, so, so, so in I, order to, in order to, for me to trust, I, well, no, trust, I think trust is overrated. Okay. I will not why? trust the policy. Why? Yeah. I'll give you two examples. I'll give you one. It's enough. There was <laughs> no trust between Begin and Sadat. No trust between them, and we have peace for more than 40 years. Mm. So trust is overrated. Okay. It's interest and it's an ability to ask yourself, and this is the question Menachem Begin asked everybody. Mm. If I accept to give up the entire Sinai for peace, which means I give a tangible thing three times the size of Israel in return for the intangible piece of paper. Okay? If mm -hmm. worse comes to worse and all hell breaks loose and Egypt violates all its commitments and moves troops and tanks and air force, air force into the Sinai, mm -hmm. can I reverse that at a reasonable cost? If the answer is yes, I go for it. 
because if I don't go for it, I know there will be war. If I do go for it, perhaps there will not be. Wow. There's no such thing as a good decision and a clear cut and a safe passage. Right. There are risks with every decision and every non-decision. Right. So when it comes to the Palestinian issue, given the fact that between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, there are 7 million Palestinians and 7 million Jews, what are our options? Yeah. Embrace them because we don't trust them. If you don't trust them, why embrace them and become one and lose our identity and a Jewish majority in an ever conflicted reality because they don't have equal rights? Right. Or yeah. should we find a way to securely separate? So I, I, um, look, there's, there's much that we agree upon, especially on the last thing that you said, that if you look at the map of options that we have available, I think the, the you know, the, the far right, I think they're, they're delusional when they say, you know, it's all ours and, and we'll just control everything and, and, and that'll just work out fine. That's a terrible idea. Um, so you're right. I mean, the, the only way to do this is to have some kind of an amicable split, right? You guys run your own show. We run our own show enough killing each other. And the question, of course, has, as it's been for many decades, is how to get there. And I, I actually... I mean, One more thing, not just yes. how to get there, mm -hmm. but the security arrangements are going to be key. Correct. Absolutely. Um, and there's a, there's a, there's a, I actually want to go one layer deeper into what, and into what you've been saying. You know, you said that the security forces, Dachlan was telling you, they have to arrest a classmate, a neighbor, a friend, a cousin, whatever it is. But even beneath those uh, personal bonds, there's still the moral plane where they say, you're doing something that is, you know, evil in its own sake, or just, you know, just bad for everyone or both and wrong is still wrong right and you need people you need institutions and this ties into the corruption thing that you need institutions and people who are raised and held to a higher moral and ethical standard and again not not saying that israel is uh, perfect obviously it's got its own corruption issues but it's not to compare to what's going on with the palestinian authority and and, and hamas of course as well Hamas even way way worse, right? If you just can look at the, the despair that, that um, we saw we see in Gaza, that you need to have that kind of a you know, what cultural shift where you place more of an emphasis on morals and ethics, and and this is not a Palestinians are genetically sort of inferior to everyone else. That's not it at all, right? There's some sort of cultural fix that needs to happen, I, I think. Um, in order to then lay the groundwork for this, uh, this, this process of trust building, or not even trust building, uh, you say that trust is overrated, but some kind of world where we're living, a reality where we're living in, where it's now Mutual it's possible. Mutual coexistence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So do you, do you, dis do you disagree with that? I, I, of course, I, um, I ask my, this question in different ways. Uh, on a daily basis. Um, for example, when I see the current polls, 
Um, and, you know, people tend to dismiss polls conducted in Arab environment as uh, I, I don't share that. Mm. Uh, I think that uh, as not a, not a specific point in time, but as indicative of trends, mm-hmm. they are just as good as any other. Okay. Um, and, the, con- and, the, and, counter-arg- and, the counter-argument would be that, let's say in Gaza, for example, no one's really telling the truth because they don't know, everyone might be... Well, if that, was, you know, if that was the case, we would not have had moments, moments, where majority of Gazans were hostile to Hamas. Right. If that were the case. And that and, was the case before October 7th, right? Yes. Right. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I usually go to two posters. One is a Palestinian, Khalil Shkaki, yep. and the other one uh, is, is a, an American. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both of them specialize uh, in this kind of uh, environment, putting in, in such an environment. Okay. Um, and I compare them and I see where they differ. Uh, and where they uh, they do not, and and mostly I'm looking for trends, okay. not for the tiny little changes, but rather where is and and you know when when you see how popular Hamas is on the West Bank, okay, mm-hmm. and you ask yourself why wasn't that the case ten years ago, and the answer is that it's not a cultural thing. The answer is that the moment when, when, when there was hope for, when there was a sense that the Palestinian Authority through diplomacy can end the occupation, people rooted for it. And when they gave up on it, they rooted for the, the only one who is doing something about the occupation and added a layer of, of denial, okay? They, in order to feel comfortable with uh, supporting Hamas, they deny that what happened happened. They didn't right. rape, they didn't massacre, right. they were not as brutal. Okay, we know in psychology uh, this, this phenomenon uh, of cognitive dissonance. How do you resolve cognitive dissonance? I want to I uh, applaud Hamas, so I have to deny that they are butchers right. and, uh, and die like terrorists. Right, um, right. But but the bottom line is, is if I am the grandson of a grandfather who was under occupation, and my father was under occupation, and I see no hope for myself of ever ha- ever having an identity um, and expressing myself, you know, uh, it, it, uh, it was twenty twenty one, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it was 2021 when Abu Mazen declared elections. Uh, and then he canceled them. When he declared them, and in the months between declaration and cancellation, there were 36 lists of independent candidates. Wow. All of them young. All, of, all the lists, it's not independent candidate, independent lists loaded with young Palestinians who felt finally we will have a voice in determining the future of the Palestinians. And when he canceled it, they were devastated. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, he is now in his 19 year in a four year term. Okay, so 
you 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 touched on on such an important point right which is hope because and I, and I want to bring this down to the individual level because I think it's you know hope is a sort of abstract concept when you're talking about nations but if you just bring it down to your own life it becomes a lot easier to understand I mean imagine that you wake up in the morning and day after day after day after day you think my life and the life of my friends the life of my kids the life of my parents none of that is going to get any better in fact it's going to get worse you have nothing to look forward to that's that's terrible uh, I, I, I can't even put myself in that shoe right? and I, I have bad days but I still believe that life is good and, and can get better so to, to rob someone of that um, is, is devastating right and, and, and that partially explains why for example you know you saw ordinary Gazans for, uh, partake in, in October 7th right um, I think uh, I've never been to Gaza I've never spoken to Sorry, I've spoken to one Gazan in my life, so I, you know, and I have such an expertise. But my my intuition is such, and and I, and I still wonder that if your hope is that you want what uh, to reverse the Nakba, if you want to destroy Israel, like as some significant percentage of Palestinian society wants. If, the, if your hope is for that, um, you're going to be severely disappointed over and over and over again, as you said, right? Israel's the far stronger party. Um, if, you, if you just want what everyone else wants, which is, you know, a normal, peaceful life where there's no, there's no so superordinate power that's, telling you, that's limiting your potential, your human potential, that's something else, right? And I think that that should be wonderful and, and should be... Um, something that everyone should have the uh, opportunity to have. The question I have in my mind is, what exactly does hope mean in the Palestinian context? Is it, is it the former or is it the latter? I, I know there's, you know, obviously shades of both in everywhere. But... Let me say something uh, <clears throat> about how you made it personal, which I, I totally agree with. Mm. Um, Ehud Barak once um, got a lot of slack for saying the following. He said, if I were under occupation, I would join a terrorist organization. Sure. Um, wow. <laughs> Quite a statement. Um, but, and I share the sentiment. If but, I but, were under occupation, I would join an organization that resists and is considered by the other side as terrorist. I don't think I would ever, ever come close to the viciousness and brutality of Hamas, that's, that's a different category. That's more like Daesh. But the, here's this the is thing. unique in the human annals. I mean, we have wars all over the world, and they don't look the way uh, Hamas and Daesh have, uh, have performed. Here's, uh, here's, but here's but the thing. is something else. Now, I, I would just there say will just... always be there will always be the irredentist. Let's assume that tomorrow morning there is a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. A border was drawn. Palestine is a non-militarized state that entrusts its outside security to Israel, which is what was the point in negotiation. That was the Palestinian position in every round of negotiation. Mm -hmm. um, 
and they are resigned to the fact, not resigned, they accept that the that, uh, uh, two-state solution rules out flooding Israel with refugees. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, and, and, and this thing happens at 10 years from signature to implementation, and we live happily ever after with whatever friction to societies like heaven. Mm-hmm. In in both societies, you will have those who will not resign to this outcome. We will have our lunatics who want everything until the Jordan River, and they will have lunatics who want exactly the same, looking at it from the other direction. Yep. The real question is, will the majority have a faith in restraining that minority. If they do, we will encounter acts of terrorism from time to time. On both sides, it will happen. There's no, uh, nobody's promising that it'll be paradise. Uh, but if, if the majority does not have a stake like today, does not have a stake in restraining the, the, the extremists, the violence, then they are empowered, and young generation joins them, and their mobilization appeal gets responded to. Um, so, so I think that 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 that's the uh, the translation of hope at the personal and at the national uh, level. So, so two things. Uh, one is uh, you, you said that you you think you would never sink to the uh, the level of brutality that you know, Hamas and ISIS. And I think part of the package when we say that, you know, Palestinians are just like any other human being, which again, you and I both fundamentally agree, is that I actually can't answer that question in the, in the negative. Like, I don't know if I was 18 years old and raised in Gaza and, and that, under that ideology and I saw that. That's because you're closer to 18 than I am. <laughs> well, you, well, you know what I mean, but uh, you know, <laughs> r- r- rewind the clock and, and imagine, you know, speaking of having no hope, you know, you live your life and the only chance of respect that you can get is by becoming a member of Hamas, right, in the armed wing, because what, half the population is unemployed, right, is, is it some... Where? In Gaza, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, imagine, you know, your role models are either unemployed or you know, small merchants or, or, you know, potential terrorists. Um, those are your options. Talk about, you know, living a bleak life. I don't know if, if I would resist the uh, temptation, right? I mean, who knows, right? So, so that's number one. And, and, and number two, th- here's something that I, I wonder, what, I'd love to know what you think, because I've been thinking about this forever. In such a, a, in a region where religion plays such a crucial role, um, such a such a uh, you know what essential role in people's lives here. Do you think that the the peace process was never sufficiently put in religious terms to to put it to the you know the the Hamas, the Islamist types, the religious settlers, the ultra orthodox to to put it in terms that they can swallow and be at peace with 
Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, and and uh, and and a mea culpa um, mm. that I will confess to in a minute. Okay. Um, but I, but I wanted to start with your previous point. Okay. Uh, about um, me going that far or not mm -hmm. as a terrorist, and I draw on our own experience. Um, not that I remember from the pre-state era, uh, <laughs> but my father was there. Okay. Uh, my late father was one of the founders of the Israeli intelligence of the Shin Bet. No kidding. From before the yeah, from before he retired at the equivalent rank of a general. Um, wow. And 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 he was in the Haganah in the underground. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, they called it Shai, Shirut Yideot, the uh, intelligence service, before the state, and then they, then it became Shin Bet, uh, today's uh, internal security. Yeah. Um, and we had basically three major um, underground uh, uh, movements, which did not fare the same ideological predisposition. Um, the Haganah was the main one, and then there was the Irgun, Etzel, and the Lehi. Um, and they varied in whom they targeted and the brutality of the targeting. Mm -hmm. None of them, none of them ever crossed those thresholds, ever. Now, there were not, not less fears in their aspiration for statehood. Right. And they were fighting on two fronts. There was the British mandate they were fighting, and there was the Arab uprising that they were fighting. Yeah. Um, and yet, there were instances that were unacceptable. And we know them. And the names are in the history books. Giryatin mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and others. None of them come close to what Daesh or Hamas were doing. So even when you're desperate for your independence and dignity and self-identity, there are things that are not done by human beings, by normal human beings. And that's why I feel confident in saying that in Palestinian shoes, I would resist, but not in those terms ever. So, uh, but I okay, I, I mean, it is a this is a what if question that uh, the, the only the only the only sort of um, in 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 my mind it's still apples to oranges because you know on the one hand you've got pre-state. And a different culture, right? A different, a different ethic, right? Where you've got this sort of communist, socialist, westernized, even in, in Judea, all that sort of mixed in. And then you've got this highly isolated, highly radicalized population with high unemployment. And so, so it's, it's a different, okay. uh, different control. I, I, anyway, I yield to, I yield to that. And I say, and I congratulate you for being a better human than, than I uh, potentially yeah. am. <laughs> in the what if, at least in the what if. <laughs> um, 
Um, now to your second point. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think that when we look back at the errors of the Oslo era, mm. uh, that is certainly one of them. Um, we did not approach, we did not even look, we, we, no, we erred even in a more comprehensive way. Mm. We believed that the, the dynamics speak for themselves. No need for marketing. <laughs> Everybody will see. Everybody will see. Well, that was really, really wrong. And one of the errors in that comprehensive mistake is the one that you, you pointed at. Mm. I, I, I'll tell you when I had an aha moment on that issue. Uh, I was in the prime minister's office and uh, Arya Derry, who uh, later became minister of this and that and eventually went to prison, but he's the leader, unchallenged leader of the Shah party, uh, Sephardi, religious, uh, with a major component of ultra-Orthodox mm -hmm. Sephardi religious uh, population. Um, Arya Deri was a young politician in the Knesset, um, whom I thought of as brilliant, mm. smart, totally peace-oriented, mm. totally supportive of what we were doing, and I'm talking about pre-Oslo, when we were cooking something, developing with the Palestinians and others. And one day he and I conspired in my little office next to the prime minister, uh, and we conspired to arrange for his spiritual leader, his and Shaft, a giant spiritual leader, Rabbi okay. Obadiah Yosef, mm -hmm. Um, we wanted him to issue the equivalent of sakalaha, of uh, uh, religious, what do you call it? Sakalaha, ruling. religious ruling mm -hmm. um, that human life is superior to land. Oh, wow. Okay. That. Uh, Am Israel Shalem, a whole of people of Israel, is more important than Eretz Israel Shlema, than the totality wow. of Eretz Israel. Okay. Now, now we decided that we are going to orchestrate a moment where he will feel that this will resonate more than just a Saturday Torah lesson, and we arranged for him a visit to President Mubarak of Egypt. Okay. And he sat down with President Mubarak, and at the end of their meeting, he went out, and there was huge press curiosity about this phenomena, and he went to the cameras and issued that uh, verdict. This was, this was, this was uh, Ovadia Yosef, or this was Arya Ovadia Yosef. Oh my God! <laughs> I, Denny, and I conspired and created this thing, 
and Ovadia Yosef went along. Oh my gosh! So, one, so that moment when he amazing. when when he issued that statement, mm -hmm. and suddenly I saw the impact of that statement on his new constituency. Mm -hmm. uh, staff of those days was very supportive of the peace process. It's amazing. Even though it meant giving up most of the um, biblical heartland. Uh, uh, yeah, the, 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 the cradle of, of Judaism yeah. in the West Bank. Because that's, that's, that's the thing that I, I question. So the emotional and the what? The um, cultural significance and connection to places in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, whatever you want to call it, are real. Um, but uh, yeah, this sounds maybe a bit callous, but you know, there are other places in the world, in, in, in the Arab world, in, in Europe, that have also um, very, what, hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years of Jewish history or Jewish attachment to it, like Morocco, for example. Uh, but just anywhere, right? Iraq, Persia, Europe. Um, but no, no Jewish people are, are, you know, have any sort of violent or um, what aggressive stance towards any of these places, right? They, they, they leave. Now, again, the, you know, the, the places in you know, Hebron, Bethlehem, these kinds of places, obviously it's, it's different because it's uh, where it all started. But I do wonder if there's a way to frame that such that, you know, sovereignty isn't the issue, it's just access to these places, right? Which just becomes like a Fez or, what, or a Marrakesh or... Lord knows what else, uh, other kind of places in the world where Jews have had a long connection to, but don't, you know, own it, right? Look, um, you know, I don't know, what, the, I don't know what Jewish teaching says about this, right? Um, I, I, you know, as a secular Jew, um, I have no problem visiting those places with a visa. Um, be it Hebron and be it uh, and be it uh, whatever. Um, um, but but what I want to say is there is a reason that the settlement settlement movement's major historical failure is not winning the hearts of the majority of Israelis. Mm. Even Israelis who believe that we have a right to these places, but that the future of their children is more important and therefore that right can be expressed in non-sovereign ways, as you said, via access. Um, um, they, we see it for, for the last, 50 years. Uh, the settlement movement is not popular among mainstream Israelis. It is very powerful today because its leaders are now in the cabinet. So it's very powerful. Uh, but that doesn't turn it 
um, into a, a popular thing. You look at the public opinion polls on the issue of different options between us and the Palestinians. And for years, people present roughly four options. Status mm. quo, two-state solution, annexation, or what is called security separation. Okay, no deal, but you are there, we are here, and we control security. Mm -hmm. These are the four options. And you see fluctuations amongst them, with the exception of one, annexation. It stays constant between 11 and 15% of the public. Mm. And when you look at the, at the electoral potency of Smotrich and Ben Gvir combined, it's between 11 and, uh, and 15% of the public. Okay. So you see the correlation um, between the size of the settlement uh, population in society and its lack of popularity among the overwhelming majority. They just never managed to win the hearts uh, of, of the Israeli public. Doesn't mean that Israelis are ready tomorrow morning to go through this awful fight for removing settlements that will be outside of Israel's border in a two-state solution. We're not there. We're not ready for it. Yeah. Um, but, but, also, but it's not a question on the agenda at the moment. It's I over the horizon. I, I also, you know, you said that you're a secular Jew, and I don't know what kind of Jew I am, but a Jew I am nevertheless. And the fact that Israel was founded where it was founded, um, in the place of where where it where this whole Jewish story um, began, makes me wonder though. Can we pause for a minute? Yeah, of course. Everything okay? Everything okay, sort of. I mean, my daughter called to report three things: her youngest with COVID, her middle with COVID, and the <laughs> third one called from the army that everything is okay. Okay, good, good, good. I uh, and I just had to go to my uh, my youngest. He was crying uh, a little bit. Um, Is it okay? That. Yeah, yeah. He's he's two. <laughs> um, and he uh, and he's, he wakes up in the middle of the night and. And his parents are, uh, because this is the third child, so we're not so tough anymore. So he just he comes into our bed to sleep with us, you know. <laughs> are you do let him? Yeah. Okay. No, that's great. I would have I would have been a terrorist. All in due course. All in due course. They, they, would, they know their timing. I would have been a terrorist, but in this life, I'm a softie, so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, so, so I, yeah, what, what I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, as I was saying, like, is there a way to arrange the fact that you don't have to have sovereignty over these culturally and historically significant uh, places of, of for Jews? But then on the other hand, I think, if I argue against myself for a second here, that Israel is founded in, in Israel, right? The, the place very close, you know, the capital is Jerusalem. Um, and 
it was founded, you know, Zionism just landed on this place for a reason, right? Because the history and all that, like that, that all came to life here. And it just, it would have been strange if this was like in Texas or something, you know, or New Zealand or any other place in the world. Right. So I, I do have some sympathy for, for the settlers when they think like, no, 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 this is, this is ours. And then we need to be here. And we've had a continuous Jewish presence in other places as well. So it's not something you could just toss aside, but you know, there must be some way that, uh, you you can marry all those things into one soup where you make you you allow people to have their emotional connection to these um to these places that makes their daily lives of rituals and you know community gatherings right in in synagogue and all, all the prayers and and all the all that history come to life right you're actually there in the place where you're reading in the book and 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 still have some sort of political arrangement baked on top of that where it's it's okay and i just i don't know what that is but um i i guess my question is more of when you were working on oslo and 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 drafting all those agreements and giving consideration to the religious uh aspects of this that you you said that that was nece- that was that should have been more of a concern for you guys at the time right not in that regard. In that regard, I'll come to this in a second. Um, wh- when I say that we erred in not taking that in consideration, mm. I meant in not involving religious authorities in educating us on how they see things, in educating them what are the constraints that we see, mm. and trying to find solutions jointly so that they will become advocates of the product. We didn't. Mm. We did struggle with the question of, well, let me let me give you a little bit, uh, open another window. Yep. In 90, Oslo was 93. In, mm-hmm. in 95, um, Yossi Balin, who was the father, really, of Oslo, um went to to uh Itzhak Rabin and tried to convince him that we should use the positive dynamics of the time in order to get it over with and reach a final deal. Mm. Not wait for the five years, which is now what, twenty-seven? Um, but rather um, go for the for, for the ultimate deal faster. Okay. And Robin wouldn't hear of it. So just like Oslo, uh, we started. Yossi started, and we were with him uh, doing what we were not authorized to do. Then we started negotiating a permanent status agreement with the uh, Palestinians representing the PLO. Uh, this time, you know, everybody was, was envious of the Norwegians that they had Oslo. So this time, uh, there was a competition from another uh, Nordic country that wanted also its name in history, but they didn't work. Um, 
and we were negotiating in uh, in Finland. Um, what? I didn't with, know. Yeah. Wow. An interesting chapter. We were working on a permanent status agreement, or not so much an agreement, but the framework agreement, which is what are the principles of a permanent uh, two-state agreement. Wow. Um, and we accomplished it. We finished, and we had a memo uh, enshrined in history as the Bailey Abu Mazen understandings. Whoa. Um, and in that, the Abu, Abu Mazen and his team, and of course Yasser Arafat back home, agreed that uh, settlers can stay in the Palestinian state. Wherever the border, those settlements that will not be included in sovereign Israel after we do the swap, the territorial mm -hmm. swap, mm -hmm. um, will be able to stay in Palestine as Israeli citizens. Uh, they can be, what do you call it, uh, residents of Palestine and citizens of Israel. They vote for the Knesset. Wow. Um, now, and we were struggling with this issue. And we had brainstormings about it with people from the Jewish branch of the Finbet and others. And we asked them, what do you think? And there was unanimity on two points. One, those who stay are those who are now, um, who live in the midst of heavily populated Palestinian areas. These are small outposts because they are not part of the major blocks that are gonna become part of sovereign Israel in the deal. Mm. But they mm. are outside in hilltop here and hilltop there, few families each. Mm -hmm. um, and it will be a, a, a nightmare for securing them. Yeah. Because no Israeli government can then trust the Palestinian forces to steal the Israelis from Palestinians in Palestine. Right. Two, you're talking about the most extreme of settlers. Because the more moderate, the more mainstream, go to the block. Yeah. And who goes to the most outposts, the most extreme of them? Um, and therefore, they would be provocateurs. Hmm. And the security problem would be compounded. Mm -hmm. So, think again, was the message uh, about allowing Israeli communities to remain outside of sovereign Israel, which is relevant to the point that you were making. Right. Yeah. Now, today, Yossi Berlin is again ahead of the curve, and he's already working for the last two years uh, on a project that uh, I'm not involved. I'm just... Uh, uh, Kibitzer, I'm just uh, from the outside, I give advice um, on confederation uh, between Palestine and Israel. Okay. Uh, in confed and, 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 uh, and the idea of a confederation in his version, which I agree with, uh, which I don't agree with others, is that confederation happens after we have a two state solution, which means two sovereign states. Mm -hmm. decide to confederate and decide in which areas 
they confederate and which not. And within that context, he believes, I don't, that Jewish communities can remain uh, in Palestine. But doesn't that run into the same problem? For the very problem? reasons that you raised. Doesn't that run into the same problem that you... Yeah, and that's why I don't support it. Right, okay. Well, don't support is an understatement. Right, right. <laughs> well, at least you listen to the security guys. I mean, you're surrounded by them. Um, yeah. So, uh, what, what do you think happens? I mean, um, you know, there's no going back to whatever the hell it was in October. So, you know, I, I was buying uh, groceries the other day and uh, I said to said to the, the woman at the cashier how she's doing and she said something like, uh, yeah, I, I wish we could go back to what it was before. And I said, I don't want to go back to that at all, right? Because look, look what was lurking underneath, right? So, and, and there's no going back, right? I mean, how, how can you possibly, how can any Israeli countenance anything that Hamas says other than we know what, you, what you're up to? Um, and we want no part of that. So what, what do you think happens? Where, where, do, where do we go from here? I don't know where we will go, but I think I know where we might go. Okay. And we are at a potentially historic, I mean, usually when it is historic, it's only in retrospect, you know, that it was historic. But yeah. I believe that History will look at this moment as, as a historic uh, uh, fork in the road um, for us. That will what the decisions that we will make in the next two years are going to determine our fate for a generation at least. Mm. And we are we are placed we are we are faced with two. Um, completely different uh, options. Option one is that this awful crisis has created an unprecedented opportunity. We have a convergence of interest of a very powerful coalition that is not just willing, but eager to help us stabilize the Palestinian arena, Gaza and the West Bank, because October 7 took up some of their basic assumptions. Um, most of them grew tired of the Palestinians and basically accepted that paying lip service to the cause is enough to pacify their own domestic constituency that empathizes with the Palestinians, identifies with them. And two-state solution was a lip service. Mm. And this included, I hope people in Washington are not going to resent that too much, this included the Biden administration. Mm. Promises made during the campaign were not fulfilled on this issue, and here we are several years later, 
Yeah. Uh, nothing was done seriously on this issue. Yeah. Everybody was talking two-state solution and nobody was doing anything about it. Um, and there was even a moment that I had a fight with uh, friends and colleagues in Washington uh, who wanted the State Department to establish a team to study the one-state option. They were so um, convinced wow. that the two-state solution is over that they felt that it was a responsi that the responsible administration cannot not study the alternative. And wow. I told them, you know, the moment that you establish a team to study it, that's a policy statement. You are announcing that Washington has given up on a two-state solution. And I think it's the wrong message. Besides, I think that you are wrong on the analysis. Yeah. Because as you know, uh, I'm convinced that the two-state solution is inevitable. Not because we wish it so. And not because we care for Palestinian rights, which I do, but you know, Palestinian rights doesn't make it a historic imperative. And because they have a right, it must happen. No, it may not. Right. I think it, it is inevitable because these two people are going to bleed each other to separation unless they separate by potent leadership on both sides. Mm. Um, Israelis will not grant Palestinians equal rights and give up on our Jewish majority and Jewish character. And Palestine is not forever will accept to live without equal rights. So they will fight. And October 7 was just, it, as awful as it was, it's just a prelude to what is happening here if we continue by the same course of the last 15 years for the next 10. We're going to bleed heavily um, we spoke about it earlier, how what Hamas did in Gaza did to mobilization for Hamas on the West Bank. Yeah. Um, so. Um, but you, you, started, you started by answering in a more hopeful tone. I'm coming to that. I'm coming mm. to that. Okay. So um, all those who spoke about the two-state solution is dead, but not yet buried. On October 7th, 8th, the two-state solution was transformed from lip service to policy directive. Hmm. Suddenly everybody is working on how do we get there? We know <laughs> it's not gonna happen tomorrow. We know yeah. it's not gonna happen tomorrow. But we start. We have to do some reverse engineering from the end game to how do we conduct ourselves today, so that one day we will get there. So oh, suddenly, that's... what you hear is the following: Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Egypt, Jordan, Qatar. Never mind the Europeans are all in line with Washington's approach, which uh, Tom Friedman gave expression to a few days ago in the New York Times, called it uh, the emerging Biden uh, doctrine, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and quite humbly, I would say that I preceded him by two months. I published it in uh, Time magazine two months ago. Um, we, 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 we said basically that we're talking about a two-layer strategy. Layer one is stabilizing the Israeli-Palestinian arena, and layer two is building on it a regional structure to contain Iran and its proxies and their meddling in the region. Now, for the regionals to integrate Israel into it, they demand a stabilized West Bank and Gaza. For them to contribute to the stabilization of Gaza, financially and otherwise, in the morning after, they have two conditions. One condition is that Gaza rehabilitation and governance is done under the auspices of Palestinian Authority. Okay. Now, they're not naive. And they know that the Palestinian Authority today is totally incapable of running Gaza. But they want the Palestinian Authority to be the legitimizer. Why, why, why are they incapable of they, running They cannot control Jenin. So you uh-huh. expect them to go over and run 2 million people, 2.2 million people, with all the, the, the devastated uh, damage. Hmm. You need a very powerful entity with very deep pockets and a different kind of legitimacy hmm. in order for Gazans to cooperate with it. Right. So what they're saying is, we're willing to contribute the the funding the financial thing funding required mm-hmm. the uh, management that is required we're even willing to contribute troops uh, boots on the ground for security provided it's all done under the auspices of the Palestinian Authority the Palestinian Authority invites the outsiders. Money for rehabilitation goes through the Palestinian Authority. Uh, two brigades of the Palestinian Authority join the troops on the ground that the region contributes, and so on and so forth. So we're talking about a process of Gaza rehabilitation with a concurrent process of Palestinian Authority revitalization, reform, rebuilding, until the symbolic role of the PA in Gaza gradually becomes substantive, not just Mm. symbolic. And eventually, the two parts of the Palestinian territories become uh, connected. So one condition that they made, and they do, this very day, literally today, reiterated by the Saudis, is that it's all done under the auspices of the Palestinian Authority. The second condition is that it is done in the context, and now I'm literally quoting because everybody is using the same mantra, in the context of a credible, irreversible commitment to a path leading to a two-state solution. So a credible commitment to a path, which means not now, mm-hmm. leading to a two-state solution, irreversible. Um, um, so if Israel were able and willing 
to accept the two conditions. We're going to have the international community with a, with a heavy accent on regional players coming in and helping us extricate ourselves out of Gaza, stabilize and reform the Palestinian Authority. And what is required of us is to change our, our attitude vis-a-vis the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank. So, if I they, think, hold I, it. I, I just want to finish this thought. Please do. If that were to happen, we have a stable situation here. Saudi Arabia normalizes relations with us. And the normalization with Saudi Arabia has two advantages in 2024. One is the normalization. It's a very valuable thing. Saudi Arabia, the main player in the Arab world, economic importance and otherwise. Two, it helps Israeli politicians market the concessions they make for the Palestinian Authority to the Israeli public. Look, look at the reward that we're getting for doing what we should have done anyway on the Palestinian right. side. Now, were that to happen, the entire American strategy of a regional architecture to check Iran integrates Israel into it. Both sides want that. The alternative? Enjoy Gaza. Hmm. You like Gaza? Have fun. Get stuck in Gaza like you did in Lebanon for 18 years. Yeah. Until a, until a, a courageous prime minister named Ehud Barak got you out of there. After 18 useless years of bleeding for no good reason. Um, so, and it's not just Gaza because the, 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 the fork in the road if we take the direction of saying no to the Biden initiative and to the regionals, we're not just going to be in Gaza for an indefinite period, bleeding and, and funding, because the international community is not going to fund an Israeli occupation. They will hmm. fund when Israel goes out. We will right. have to fund it. But it's not going to be just Gaza. Because under such circumstances, the West Bank will slide in a Gaza-like direction, because there's no hope. And I remember well your point about hope on the personal and national level. Yeah. So we're going to have that. And if the two areas are bubbling, will the Abraham Accord signatories be able to sustain pressure that is already there to cut relations? Will Egypt and Jordan be able to sustain public pressure to cut relations? So the fork in the road is dramatic. You go one way and you have a completely different potential future. I want to be careful. Maybe it will fail. Yeah. Maybe things will go wrong. But you know that if you take the other one, you're guaranteed for an awful future. It's you. You raise. You raise a. I love the. I love the way you framed it because it's. Um. It's easy to lose sight of the claim that 
you know, Hamas is really a Iranian puppet and Iran sensing Israel and Saudi Arabia and sort of the noose actually tightening around their neck in the region uh, gives support to this, to October 7th. And with, with the gamble that this will, as you say, lead to Israel making strategic mistakes where it blows up everything, right? Not just Saudi Arabia and Israel, but the entire Abraham Accords, Egypt, Jordan. So there's like there's the extreme end of that scenario, and then the, on the other hand, it's is is it completely backfires against Iran and 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 Hamas and Hezbollah and all these all these um, lovely folks that um, the Houthis in Yemen. Correct, right, right. <laughs> all the uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's and and there's no. There's, there's no there's no sort of third option in the middle somewhere here. But I mean, because as you say, I don't like, see. right? I don't because see. you're saying all, all the forces yeah. in the region and in Washington are pushing in one clear direction, which is you know, I asked somebody uh, just yesterday. Mm -hmm. I asked somebody, um, what is Plan B? Which is what you are asking, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, if, if the Biden approach is not working, what is plan B? And the answer was plan B is to work harder on plan, plan A. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, um, so why, why, why would Israel not work? The, I guess the only objection that would be if you if israel doesn't have security control over gaza what hamas type force would take its place I and mean, how, how could they trust the pa to keep a lid on things if as you said they can barely control janine and and hamas and what they do in there right there's no trust mm -hmm. gaza has to be demilitarized and for a significant period of time we should also oversee the, the, the demilitarization um, for a significant period of time. We should control the outer envelope of the smuggling, hmm. weapon smuggling. The, by now, everybody knows the name, Philadelphia uh, 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 route, mm -hmm. um, which separates Gaza from, from Egypt. <laughs> mm -hmm. Less than 10 miles long, 14 kilometers. Um, and the, 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 assuming Israel was in the mood to plan the morning after, and we know that the prime minister prevents that from happening. He does not allow the cabinet to discuss the morning after because he knows that there are three options for Gaza, Israeli prolonged occupation, Israeli unilateral withdrawal, which leaves a vacuum that sucks into it all the crazy terrorists from all over the region, mm -hmm. all Al-Qaeda derivatives and Daesh ISIS derivatives and other Salafis and Hamas come back and whatever. Uh, or third party takes over. Third party conditions it on PA. Third party conditions it on a prospect for a peace process 
in the future. The first one, the Israeli public doesn't want to prolong the uh, occupation. The second one, nobody wants. And the third one, the lunatic members of his coalition don't want. Mm -hmm. So he's not bringing it up for discussion because he knows that the security establishment for sure would make this analysis. And we say, okay, mm -hmm. you know, you are the boss, you yeah. choose. Yeah. Uh, and that's the end of his coalition. So the reason that we're not discussing it uh, is because of political considerations, not national security interests. So we're stuck. I, I, I keep saying to, to my American colleagues that Gaza is stuck in Jerusalem. <laughs> All roads lead back there, don't they? And, and you know, the, the administration in Washington, and not just the administration in Washington, some usual suspects over here, too, have been working on detailed plans of that transition period that, that as you said, we cannot trust anybody. Mm. And how do we secure it? And how do we square the circle that um, the third parties will not want to look as operating on behalf of Israel? Which means that they are the occupiers. Mm -hmm. They want to look as those who enable the Israelis, not force Israel, to get out of Gaza in the service of Palestinian aspirations. Hope. Which will give it legitimacy and hope, and, and, and therefore public popular support that restrains the crazy, the, yeah. the, the extremists, that instead of joining the extremists, they whisper to the authorities, these guys are planning something, you better go there. Hmm. Hope, hope, hope. That's it. They've got to be messengers and, and ambassadors of hope. Uh, yeah. I don't see, I don't see hope a better Hope is far more important than, than trust. Yeah. Hope is theirs, their own. They own it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, 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 trust is in someone else. You, uh, you know, this is just, again, on, on a basic human psychology that you want to feel like your life has meaning and purpose and it's not for nothing. You know, you get one shot at life and you want it to be as good as it could possibly be. And not just for you, but for your kids and for your family. And who, who wouldn't want to live like that, right? That's that's what makes life great. Um, you know, there was a moment. I'm sorry. Yeah, go no, ahead. go ahead. Tell me. There was a moment where the Egyptians, um, before, way before, years before October seventh, reached the conclusion that the going strategy was failed and would lead to a major bloodbath. Um, and they developed an alternative strategy, which is what everybody is talking about now. Um, and they started to prepare for it. And, and they came to Bibi and they, they presented it and they asked for a green light and so on. It, it's a, an interesting uh, anecdote in history. But one thing that they did, and to me was astonishing because it was run by the Egyptian intelligence. In Egypt, the Egyptian intelligence holds the Israel file. Israel and Palestine, uh, not the foreign ministry. Um, so 
uh, the Egyptian intelligence was preparing this strategy. And one of the things that they did that astonished me was for two years, they brought to Egypt, to a resort, groups of about 80 to 100 young Gazans, um, group after group after group, each one being 80 to 100 people for retraining in Islam. Okay. They would bring them to a resort and bring them religious authorities to discuss with them a different interpretation of the Quran. This is what Hamas taught you in the mosque. And we will show you a different faith of Islam. Well, peace, pro moderation, coexistence, and so on. And and they and they had an implied message, which was basically look around. These Gazans never left Gaza. They never knew a different kind of life. And they brought them to a nice resort and say it's a matter of choice. If you make a certain choice in accordance with this interpretation of the Quran, Gaza can look like this resort. That's amazing. And they prepared 1,200 young people to serve as the political base for the leader who will lead Hamas away from violence to becoming a political party. Wow. It's an anecdote. It, 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 you know, the difference between an anecdote and a, uh, and a, or, or a footnote, footnote to history yeah. and a turning point in history is a decision of a leader. Right. When he embraces it, it becomes a turning point. When he rejects it, it becomes a footnote. People right. rejected it, so it became oh. a footnote. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, I don't think they described to him this, because uh, I don't think at that level of leadership you discuss layers like this, because there, there were more important layers that they prepared for that strategy, including bringing the Saudis and the Emiratis to replace the Qataris in funding Gaza so it's not going to go to Hamas. Right. But rather to others, and, and so on. There was a lot of preparations made before they came to present it in Jerusalem and to ask for a green light. Uh, but I thought that that anecdote links both to what you said about religious here, yeah, yeah, um, and and to and to the fact that even an intelligence service can sometimes be intelligent. <laughs> Listen, uh, I think we're going to have to end on that note because I've got a child who's... I hear that uh, you, you're, you're being called. <laughs> you're being summoned. That's right. The boss is talking. Yeah. Nero, thanks so much for doing this, man. This was, this was it's great. It's a pleasure. Enjoy talking to you. Likewise, man. Be well. Take care.